You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the last two episodes of the Useless Information Podcast, we followed 93-year-old Marvin Lautzenheiser from his time growing up in small-town Ohio through his days in college to his FBI field assignment in Charlotte, North Carolina, and through the work that his team did in cracking the microfilm that was hidden inside the hollow nickel that helped capture Soviet spy Rudolf Abel. Well, today in part three, Marvin will tell of his decision to leave the FBI his 17 years consulting with the Pentagon to model theoretical future nuclear wars, his patents that are still in use on computer storage devices today, plus you'll get to hear music being played on his monster-sized theater organ that he installed in his home. All that and more is coming up next in the final installment of The Crypt Analyst. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information Welcome back. As I mentioned, this is the third and final segment of my interview with Marvin. And in this first section, Marvin will talk a little bit more about his boss Downing. Then he'll comment a bit more on the nickel case. And then he's going to go on to discuss a different case. That's the brown-green case that he was assigned to deal with. Now, the interesting thing about that one is that he should have never gotten it. As you'll hear, it was just a little slip of the tongue by then-FBI Director Jager Hoover that made him have to deal with this. Now, this is not a significantly important case, but I included it just to give you a little bit of an insight into the power that Hoover wielded while he was in charge of the Bureau. So let's listen in. And uh, what was Downing's first name, do you remember? Yes, uh, Churchill. Hmm, that's an unusual one. Yes, Churchill Downing. He had been divorced. His only life was the Bureau, and it didn't matter. You had families. Uh, you were supposed to be like Hoover. Hoover was not married, and he thought your life should be only devoted to the FBI. Churchill Downing tried to emulate him, but overdid it even. In fact, in the Brown chase, as you have already read, I think, well, I, I've read it, but of course, people who'll be listening have no clue about it. So why don't you just start from the beginning on how that came about, right? It, ha- it had to do with uh, going into Hoover, not you going into Hoover's office, but Downing doing that, right? Uh, yes. The, the going into my Hoover office was totally related to the taking tours. Once I became an agent, I would never go to his office again unless there was some special thing, which I think only happened once or twice. But anyway, Downing was on his own on this. When I came back as an agent, his attitude towards me changed. He'd been pretty good to me, difficult, but pretty good to me while I was doing the cryptanalysis studies. And up through the time I got to the agent's academy, I didn't have a lot to do with him. I dealt with uh, Newfer most of the time. Woody Newfer was the old agent that I worked for as a, oh, through my classes, uh, my studies, and so on. He had a fantastic history. He had been in Spain during World War II, and he broke into the German embassy there, copied their code books, printed them on their printer, and left them place with a print out of their code book. He had nerves of steel, and uh, one of the nicest persons in the world. His family and my family got to be close friends, and even through all my trouble with Downing, we still remained close friends. 
But anyway, I didn't have a lot of close contact with Downing until I was an agent. And then I worked directly for him. And the nickel case came maybe within the first week or two. Older agents had already worked on that at the time it was given to me. But they never told me their deductions. I, I didn't realize enough to just go say, why didn't you tell me this? And But I, I started at the beginning all my tests, but now I could run them on the computer, which I didn't have before. When I got there, it was right after the computer was installed. So they didn't have any help like that. It was all by hand. So we thought maybe with the help of the computer, I might do something. And I did everything over again that they had done by hand and everything I could dream of. Oh, I would think at night, I'd go to bed thinking, what did I not do yet on this thing? I was so determined I was going to break it. But of course, everything that was given to me, I was determined I'm going to break this. Sometimes you did and sometimes you didn't, but that was my attitude about it. So let's talk about the Brown-Green case. Uh, you know, just try, just try and describe what happened, how Downing got involved, and then basically set you up and what you did about it. Well, I don't know how Downing got it because he shouldn't have. It was an investigative problem. We had a bureau, investigative section, and they were the ones that administered all the fields. They covered all the fields, offices, and how they did things and everything. And here comes along something that was definitely one of their problems. And here I am several degrees away in a cryptanalysis section being given this to come up and make up for Hoover's disclip of tongue. It was nothing more than that. So what did Hoover do? Why don't you explain that? Uh, he just, at the end of their uh, weekly meetings on a Friday, he had a staff meeting with the assistant directors every Friday morning. And this Friday, he was leaving to go out, I think, to some of the field offices over the weekend or maybe just vacation. But anyway, he wanted to get away early. So they finished everything else, and they were all holding their breath about this because it was national headlines. And uh, he said, uh, well, what's going on with the Green case? And they were all stunned because they expected him to say what's going on with the Brown case. Of all the people in the world, they were the closest to him, assistant directors, and they would not say, don't you mean the Brown case? And uh, what exactly was uh, was going on in the Brown case that they were concerned about it? Uh, well, within the last week or two or three of the time that this happened, there was a, a fugitive named Brown. I don't know if he was on the dust 10 must wanted, but he was way up on the need to catch. And so he was very upset. You do not arrest the wrong person. You just don't do that. The FBI always gets them right. So in other words, they arrested the wrong Brown. They arrested the wrong person. It wasn't even Brown. Well, yes, it was Brown, but it wasn't the same first name. It was the same model of car, except it was a two-door instead of a four-door. But the same color, same year, everything. And uh, his driver's license didn't match. So they should have known. But, you know, there was so much that it was in favor of him being the right guy. They figured he could have changed his driver's license or something. But anyway, uh, they arrested him. And then it came out that, of course, he was not the right person. And it hit the newspapers, the FBI arrested the wrong person in some kind of, I guess he was already famous or something. But some of that's guesswork. I don't know why he was so important. But he was, and they arrested the wrong guy, and Hoover was very much upset about it. And so they were waiting for his wrath when that meeting was getting down to the end. And uh, to their surprise, he says, what's happening in the green chase? None of the assistant directors would say, don't you mean Brown? Don't you think one of them should have been brave enough to say, don't you mean that? Well, anyway... Because of that, the investigative people said they were in deep trouble already. They didn't want to go any deeper. And so I guess, I don't, I have to guess from how it got to Downing. But and Downing, I think, volunteered that he would take care of it. And of course, the investigations were so happy to get it off their hands because they knew whatever was written was going to be wrong. He wouldn't under, what are you putting this stuff on my desk for? But anyway, I got off. I worried the whole weekend. Well, the whole weekend I was working, I worried through the night. 
got into work and I just was waiting for the hammer to come down. What happened? Why did he do this? And I got off the hook because he just looked at the name on the thing. He said, oh, I meant brown case and didn't read all my gobbledygook. So basically, you sp- this is on a Friday, and you were given till Monday to f- to find out whatever you could on Green? Yep, till Monday morning at 9, I had to have it on Downing's desk. Well, it was supposed to be on Hoover's desk, I think, by 9. And I'm not sure about whether it was Downing's or his. But anyway, I had till Monday morning to have this on the desk. I arranged with Downing's secretary that she would come in late Sunday for typing whatever I had to go. And I got uh, volunteers from some of the other dentists to come in and read read the green case files. And my team volunteered to come. Apart. Each, each one of them volunteered for at least some time. And so I had a lot of people there, eight or ten people working off and on through Saturday and Sunday. I stayed until late Friday night. I came in early Saturday morning, stayed late that night, came in Sunday morning. And finally, about oh, mid-afternoon, I decided, well, this is the best I have. It's not much. So basically, you had to find all the green cases that were out there for the FBI and choose the best one. Yes, I called uh, the files and I had them send up all the uh, green cases that could be of interest currently throughout the whole country. And uh, they came in, they had these charts, you know, that hauled files. And they came in cartload after cartload of these things, and they all had to be reviewed. And none of them were interesting. I really just had to pick the uh, least bad. And I, I wrote up a single-page memo for Mr. Hoover. Anyway, that's what happened. And uh, and in the end, it didn't make any difference. You You, you did your job. And uh, it went to his desk, and he said, I meant uh, the Brown case, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. If any of his uh, assistant directors had said, don't you mean Brown, it would have been all over right then. Next, Marvin discusses why he decided to leave the FBI. As you'll hear, his boss Downing did not treat him very well. You see, Downing was unrealistic in his expectations, and that included requiring Marvin to document that all computer equipment, which was crazy expensive back then, all computer equipment had to be in use 100% of the time. I mean, think about that. Is your computer printer or scanner in use all the time? Of course not. Yet Marvin had no choice but to fudge the machine usage logs and timesheets just to appease his boss Downing. I come to the conclusion that there was no way up for me and there was no way to stay. And why is that? Well, because Downing was not going to let me work. He was going to just keep bothering me. For the whole year up until the NASA stuff, I had not had a, any problems with Downing with regard to my workers. Uh, suddenly, after within a week or two after that, suddenly Dean Ernest's desk, the desk drawer, the bottom left one, had a little dust in it and did not have a dust rag with a slight dusting on it. And please speak to Mr. Ernest about this and make sure it doesn't happen again. So I had to write a memo saying that I had spoken to Ernest and I had done this and I had told him about how important it was to follow the FBI rules. And Anyway, I had to, I had to demean myself into saying how bad I was because of that dust. Then about six weeks later, it would be Lauren Gills. He was the other crypt person that worked with me. And it was a different desk drawer. It was something the same thing. One time there was a paper left. It was just a, a paper with nothing on it of significance. But you're not allowed to leave any papers in your desk. The only thing you could have in your desk was a tickler. Of course, you should not put anything of secrecy in there. But you had a tickler every day. On uh, one day, with well, a tickler for so and so, one or the other has not been pulled for that day when they. What what is a what is a tickler? You have a a set of hanging files. I don't know hanging or not hanging, but there's 31 slots in it, 31 places for things to be uh, papers to be put in. Okay. It's marked one, two, three through 31. If today is the seventh of something. Immediately when you come in to work, you pull all the papers out of the seven, and you take care of what you can, and the ones you can't, you mark them for the eight or for the nine, and you put them in a, a future folder. 
it was the rule that you should not leave work with anything in today's uh, folder. No matter how trivial, it, it shouldn't be important because it would have been locked up in the safe if it had been. But anyway, that's the way it was. And so one time it was that ticker who hadn't been pulled for the day. It was something about what the programming was. It was nothing important. But he hadn't pulled his tickler. So I had to write a memo about how I'd talked to so-and-so. I don't know if it was uh, Ernest or Gil. Anyway, that's the kind of thing it was, he was doing. He, he picked on me on personal things about my shirt was out of style. My way of putting on my jacket in the evening was so awkward. How, how could I be so awkward? I didn't get through a week without some new thing about him. And these are all tiny little things, right? Yeah, they're just little urchin things. But he had made it clear that I was not going to go anywhere. And I, I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to do what I was doing. But it was just a... I was going to get a transfer. I knew if whenever the uh, stuff about the machine usage came to light and the timesheets came to light, those were two things that were no-nos. And I, I knew when those come to light, I would be uh, transferred. I had little kids in a school. I didn't want to go to a place like New York or Chicago or someplace. And incidentally, I stepped forward and out of the Bureau for about a year. And one of my friends there called me and said, do you know what happened? I said, no. He said, the inspectors came in, and the guy that took over for me is now in Chicago uh, on the field. He's no longer a supervisor. So I, I thought that that was coming for me. That sooner or later, there would be an SNAP inspection, and uh, I'd be criticized severely for that, and I'd be out in the, out in the field. I didn't mind going to the field, but I didn't want to go to Chicago or something. I'd have been happy to go back to Charlotte. Next, Marvin discusses leaving the FBI and going to work for a company named TechOps, which is short for Technical Operations. They were designing a program to simulate various nuclear war situations, which was an incredibly complex thing to do back in the late 1950s. Now, as you listen to this section, once again envision how primitive computers were at this time. It's hard to believe, but the new IBM 709 that this program was being designed for, it was built using vacuum tubes, not transistors or chips, and Marvin had to learn how to operate it without having any access to the machine itself. I left in December of 58, but I had leave that took me over into January so I always say I left at the end of December, and I went to a place called Tech Ops. I'd never heard of them. They're a company in Massachusetts, close to Boston, where they had a specialty. They had a machine that went down in wells and to check the the uh, welds where the sections were welded together. They could uh, photograph them in some sense and see if there were any weaknesses, any bubbles or anything in the welds. So it should be fixed before they had pressure on it. And somehow they had weaseled a contract for a lot of money to set up an office in Washington to do an operation on the computer to simulate the war, uh, the nuclear war. And uh, it had been thought up by Rand Corporation. You must have heard of them. Sure. They had thought it up, but they didn't want to build it. They gave that over to this division that was set up in Washington. And... uh, I was not thrilled, actually, by going to that. That didn't sound like very interesting to me. Turns out it was more interesting than I could imagine. But anyway, I went there as a as a programmer, and I got a good raise. And uh, I went in. They had thirty, about thirty people there. Put most of them in, the, not too much older than I was on the on their teams. Anyway, I got there and I was given a desk. Uh, there were several people in, with dividers. And I was getting some a program and some uh, flowcharts. I guess I hadn't reached programs yet quite, but there were flowcharts, and I was to check those to see if they were would work. Anyway, they gave me some, what somebody else had written up as the flowcharts that would be programmed to do this, and uh, it didn't make any sense to me at all. But I kept studying them, and I, I found out they had built a special operating system. You know, we didn't have decent operating systems then. We were working on the 709, which actually didn't exist yet for for us. The Air Force hadn't gotten theirs installed yet. 
But we were going to work on a 709, and we were to build this simulation of strategic nuclear warfare. As you just want to obliterate everything. And uh, so I was reading through this of what somebody else had said would do the job. Well, first, the fact that they had their proprietary operating system meant that nothing else ever existed to tell you about it. And they had built it specially to do this job, and they had built it on the basis of running with tables for the data. We had tables for the fuel usage, and that meant at a certain altitude and a certain speed you're using so much, and you can go so far on this many gallons of fuel. There would be another one for the radiation, what happened on the ground when the nuclear bomb went off. You had distances of damage, and especially the damage to the airfield, because if the airfield got hit, obviously the bomber couldn't take off, and so on. And each each of these was given to a different so-called team. So the team I was on was a team of two, me and the man who had written the flowchart. So I studied through these, and I finally was starting to get the feeling of how this new operating system worked. I finally had just about mastered that, and the boss called me, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm not doing very well. And he says, Lassenheiser, uh, I think you're the only one in the whole bunch here that knows what's going on. And he says, I, I want you to take on some more here, and I, I want you to uh, just get on with the bombers as fast as you can. So I was working on it, and I finally got to where I could actually code. turns out the uh, fellow who wrote the flowchart had no idea how coding was done. <laughs> he, he just had no idea, but his logic was pretty good. So we got in the same room, finally, just got a room to ourselves, and so we could discuss things real nicely. And after a, a week or two or three, I said, uh, John, do you, do you mind if I redo some of your uh, logic here to make it fit the program and so on? He says, sure, sure, go ahead. So we would discuss the changes. So anyway, about two or three months after I was there, one Friday they came in and they handed me a, a book. It was a 709 uh, operating system book. And they said, here, they got the new machine in at the Air Force in the Pentagon. Monday morning, you go over there and uh, go down to that computer and you run it. They don't have anybody in the Air Force who can run the 709. I, I said, but wait a minute. They said, you've run the 650. I said, yeah, but it was a bi-quinary machine, and this is a pure binary machine. And besides, this this has tape drives. We never had tape. They said, you're the most qualified here, and they told us we should use that machine if we can run it. You just go over there Monday morning. So I went. I studied the machine at the book all day, all weekend, and I went over there Monday morning as so though I knew what I was doing. And here was about five Air Force men milling around. What do we do? What do we do next? I had taken the operating system cards with me. And I said, here, put those in the card reader. And I went to the console. And sure enough, I got the console to start up. And I read the cards. And the operating system was up, waiting for programs. (laughs) So I spent the first uh, two weeks, I ran their machine for them. And they finally got somebody qualified. I guess he was at school during that time. And I went in and they said, uh, no, you don't you don't run the machine anymore. We run it. <laughs> so, And uh, actually, I could go to that machine only for about a year, maybe two years. I still went in, and when I got there, they'd let me run the machine. I got there one day, and they said, you aren't qualified to see the machine. So they had decided it was too classified for me. And so I didn't go, but I took I knew the operator because I'd been working with them. And so I would take my stuff over and my cards, and I'd ask one of the operators to run it for me, and he'd say, tell me when he could get it in. Maybe it was right away. Maybe it was in a couple of hours. A lot of times he said, well, you can't get in until tomorrow. He said, but how big is your job? And I'd tell him, and he said, I'll get it in for you. Just wait. And he'd break my jobs in and run them. I was on very good terms with him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The new IBM 709 computer only had 32 kilobytes of word memory. That meant that at any one time, it could only store 32,768 words, each of those words consisting of six alphanumeric characters in its memory. And with the operating system taking up half of that memory, that really didn't leave much space for the program itself. And due to all these limited resources, you know, the computers are incredibly slow also, Let's jump into our conversation where Marvin explains how long it took to run a single war simulation. And along the way, Marvin will tell you about his invention of paging. That's the way the modern computers store and retrieve data from hard drives today. Anyway, we finally got the thing built, and it ran. It took 80 hours for one replication of the World War. Well, after that model was running, the uh, Air Force came back and said, uh, we want you to build a model or run in 40 hours. Half a, We can live with that, but we can't live with 80 hours. So they said, we want you to build a half-time model, and we want Lotzenheiser to be in charge. They didn't like the one that was in charge at the time. And they said, they come to me and they said, we have a, an option. We you take the job, or we'll have to go on the street and convince the Air Force that we can bring on somebody who's expert. So I said, I'll tell you tomorrow. And I come home, I thought, I don't want to work for somebody else. It's been bad enough with the one that's there. Somebody come in cold, I'll have to teach them. And by this time, I was was really handling just about all the different parts. The team was still there, but I was the one that fixed everything. So... uh, I said, okay, and I saw suddenly I had about 30 people working for me. And I had was given the job of building this model that would run in half time. So I went down through the whole thing from beginning, what Rand had suggested, and figured out a way I thought would work. And so I redid it from scratch. I didn't follow any of the old stuff. They also had a tape with the operating system on it, and a tape with the data on it, and a tape with the programs on it. And uh, it just was cumbersome. And every part of the program was hinged on the next one, which was hinged on the next one. You got to the last one, it came back to the first one. Every 15 minutes, you put out a, a report of what the situation was, how many bombers had gotten off, how many fighters had gotten off, and so on. The uh, idea was that they could cycle this thing around and everything was set up for another 15 minutes. I set up a different way of doing it. I, I taught it a task list drive. So each one that needed at least something to be done by another section just called that one up. And I was so far ahead of myself, I never realized it until many years later. I had built paging, which didn't come in until we had disks. We weren't even close to disks in 1950. 1960s. So anyway, I didn't know what I had. So the program originally took 80 hours. They wanted it reduced to 40. In the end, how fast did you get it? Three hours. Three hours. So you took it from 80 down to three hours. Yeah. And of course, they were very happy with me. And uh, you also mentioned to me when we spoke a few weeks ago that it changed two things in their war plans. Well, there were two things that made the public knowledge. I don't know how many more things changed. But I think you must remember that we had rocket sites around our cities to defend us. And uh, that turned out to be a mistake. Uh, they were, Actually, the rocket sites were defending the military stuff. Every military base had rockets around it. But it was a mistake because the nuclear targeting wasn't very accurate. But it didn't matter. It was so big it would get things anyway. But because of that, they would target a military base, like we have them based near Washington, but they'd miss it and hit the population. And so if they took away these sites that were defending the base, defending the cities, they wouldn't target them anymore. The headline always says, this came out quite a while later, 100 million lives. And that was the number of people more who would die within the first day if they kept the sites here or if they took them out. Just took them out, didn't replace them with anything. And this is the result of your of the program you ran? 
Yes, as a result of the program. They kept coming back saying how much was done, and finally it dawned on them to take out the defensive sites, and the program popped up with a hundred million difference. Wow. They did a lot of different studies, but of course I didn't see the real data. I saw sanitized data, so I don't know. But I knew at the time about this because I did the the, uh, the I saw the printouts of my stuff, and I could see what the trend was. <clears throat> anyway, that was one thing that was a change. The other one that made the publicity was that they used to have the bombers take off, say, at Washington, and they'd meet a, a tanker taking off from New York, which would uh, meet one in Greenland somewhere, so they could refuel the bombers on the way. And then they were on their own for that last leg. And the program came back and said, every one of your bombers went down in the ocean. We had a program called Splash that put them down, so it gave the location they went down. And what what was the reason that the bombers weren't making their target? Because no tankers got out off base. The bases had been hit first, and so the tanker base would be closer to Russia, and so they would be hit early. And the bombers got out there, and nobody was there to meet them. And this happened with every bomber. It wasn't just a few. Every bomber failed. And the, the military was just up in the air. My program must be wrong. And so because we could run it in three hours, I said, just change your random number and do it again. And again, all the bombers went down. So anyway, that was one of the things that came up. They changed the way they now have the buddy system. Instead of waiting for one tanker to meet you, they take off with two or three tankers with them. So you you waste maybe half a dozen tankers to get the bomber to its target, and that multiplies by every bomber you want to send. Marvin stayed at TechOps for about three years. Then the group that built the operating system for TechOps, they split off and asked Marvin to join their new company, and he agreed to do so. His assignment was to build a complete operating system for Bell Telephone, which he completed all by himself in less than a year. Then he received a phone call from an Air Force lieutenant colonel who he knew very well, and he explained that they had been unable to get a tactical nuclear program to work. Marvin picks up the story there. And he explained that they had called in experts from Michigan, some um, university in Michigan and Princeton, and both had declared that this program could not work. It couldn't work in the size of the machine for the size of the program. As he said, this is all QT. I'm not allowed to do this. He says, but I'll give you a copy of the listing, and you look at it and see if you can fix it. And if you can, I, we've got $50,000 for you to set up a small company who can get you the clearance you have to have, and uh, we'll get you a contract. Well, first hour or two I looked at it, I saw they had done the most stupid thing in the world. Have you ever heard of thrashing in a computer? Uh, yeah, I've heard of it, yeah. It means that the program keeps starting to do something, it gets interrupted and goes back to do something else, but then it gets interrupted to do something else, and it never gets done with the interruptions, and it finally just chomps out. Well, that's about what was happening here. They were had it thrashing. I don't know why the people from the so-called experts wouldn't have realized this. It, it took me about a week to fix it and test it. And uh, so it, so at this point, since you were successful at this, you went off and founded your own company, is that correct? Well, they asked me to. And uh, Chauncey Seafelt from the FBI, uh, coincidentally, had run into things there, and he did, did not want to stay there. So he, he came out at the same time that they were asking me. He says, why don't we set up a company? And that, coincidentally, it was just at the time they were saying, why don't you set up a company? So we did, a two-man company. Uh, actually, we've got a secretary, so it made three three people. We rented a small space in an office near where I live in Springfield, and uh, we were off and running. Not very well. We were limping because the 50000 didn't go very far. Even then, it was it was a lot of money, but when you have office rent and so on, it, it was going to run us maybe a year. And his job, Chauncey's job, was to go out and find other work, which he couldn't. After that went out, we got a new contract for doing some more work for them, and then another one. Each year we got a new contract, just scarcely enough to keep us running. 
Well, after three or four years, another company came along and offered to buy Marvin and Chauncey out, and they agreed. Now, they still did what they wanted to do, but now new work was being sent their way. And in the meantime, the Joint Chiefs of Staff took over the modeling stuff from the Air Force. When the Joint Chiefs of Staff came and took over, then I had to go and talk, go to meet them. And I, we'd have 20 or so generals and bird colonels in the room, all of them asking my questions at the same time. Can you do this? How do you do that? Why does this work? And uh, those, by definition, aren't necessarily very polite people. I'll just say that as an observation. They wanted quick answers, but they wouldn't let me answer until somebody else butted in. So this went on until uh, 1970, 1972, I think. Well, in the early 70s. Eventually, I dropped the military, and maybe they dropped me. It was mutual anyway. I had run through my time. Marvin may no longer been working with the Pentagon to design programs to evaluate war plans, but he still had plenty of work to do. His focus turned to smaller contracts that the company who bought him out was sending his way. And these were all service bureau type jobs, basically data processing services. So let's listen in. And the service bureau portion was specializing in labels for charities and nonprofits. Anybody who needed a lot of mailing labels would come to them with a mailing list, they'd punch it up and run it through their program. But their program was, was less than decent. It was awful. So I wrote a new program for doing the labels. And the process of doing that, I discovered that this is not the way to do it. I'll build a program that keeps you from building programs. <laughs> because we had not only make labels, they wanted reports from this, how many people in this district or this zip code and so on. And then you had to print out a report. Well, there was a special program for each of those reports. Oh, and we had files coming in that weren't in a system that we used, so I had to build programs to convert that data into our files. I had to look at the layout of the data, figure out how to take that and put it into our layout. Anyway, I always did it, but it was tiresome. So I started out by building a converter. You could tell it the old file layout and the new file layout, and it would automatically just take the data through and do it. Not only did Marvin build a converter to import all the data, he also did the same thing with the reports and the mailing labels. And what would take other companies a week to do, he could do the same in 20 or 30 minutes. And this gave his company a big leg up when the 1980 presidential elections came about. Okay, well, anyway, the uh, Democratic Party came to us first. No, they split off from it, and I can't remember his name. He was a nice person. And they they, uh, brought their stuff to us, and I gave them back within a couple days the reports, and they were so thrilled that they called the Democratic Party leaders and told them to bring their stuff to us. So I was doing all the financing reports for those two campaigns. They were so thrilled because they had gone to a big company who gave them an estimate. It would take them three weeks or six weeks or some long time, and it would cost you $10,000. After this was all over, of course, that the champagne was over. That was the end of that. But we still had a lot of other people who were using us. Chauncey and I were at work one day on a Saturday. Nobody else was there, and a, a man walked into our office, and we were confused. Why would they come? somebody come in our office on Saturday? And he said, I'm with such and such a company, and uh, we wanted to see who took that contract away from us. He said, we just couldn't believe that anybody could underbid us. We bid low already. It was only $10,000 and three or four or six weeks. I don't know the number. He said, we just had to see who took it away from us. And we told him it was we were the ones, and he couldn't believe that this little company could do it. And he said, but how could you possibly program? I said, we didn't program. We have a program, a system that we built that's it was called the AccuFile system, incidentally, the whole combination. And uh, we have this AccuFile system that we have built, and they'll say, we just take your data descriptions and what report descriptions, and we're done. They just don't believe us. And in the final chapter of Marvin's career, the company he'd been working for was absorbed by the Zytel Corporation, and they had an office in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. 
The company specialized in solid-state memory, which they built out in California. Now, the starting price was about fifteen dollars to $16,000 for their memory, and it went way up into the half-million-dollar range. And at that price, they weren't selling much, at least until Marvin rescued them. They uh, weren't selling very many. In fact, they closed the office here. I started working here on this stuff. They closed that office and uh, asked me to go to California. They said, you have a job in California. And I said, okay, I'll be there. They didn't expect me, but I got out there and I worked on this. I built a simulator to simulate the operations on a given computer. They could run a trace and know what happened, but they couldn't fix it. So I would uh, take the traces and run it through my simulator, and it would tell me what was wrong. It would tell me exactly how much memory, uh, solid-state memory, would do the most good for them. They were trying to oversell. They were selling uh, twice or three times as much or four times as, as needed for a given place. But I looked at the trace from that same place, and I'd draw a graph, and it would go out and be a big place where a big drop-off started. It would be and it would suddenly drop off any more you put on, it doesn't help anything. They were able to sell eight megabytes or 16 instead of 64, and they started selling two or three a week. Uh, I was so popular with our marketing group that come the uh, Christmas party, which was financed by all these sales, they had marketing people all come in and they gave out awards. And they had given out awards for most sales and awards for other things, and they got down, there was one left. And they said, and this is goes to Lottenheiser for his method of telling how much was needed to be sold. And the marketing group all jumped up and started yelling. <laughs> so uh, they they appreciated it. We had sa- I'd saved the company. Beast. Another problem Marvin had to deal with was the slowness of accessing data from disks. He was able to cut the time that the CPU, that's the brain of the computer, the time the CPU sat around waiting for data, he cut it from 30 to 50 milliseconds down to 50 microseconds at a time. And for his work, he was awarded five U.S. patents. Amazingly, his creation is still in use today. It's used in your computer right now. And as you're about to hear, Zytel sat on the idea for two years. So they were getting responses in 50 milliseconds. So I, I would be sending back data within 50 microseconds. I showed them how, and they said, oh, it'll eat our lunch. It'll eat our lunch. Of course it will, because somebody else is going to eat it if you don't. Tech stuff goes fast. But anyway, two years later, they realized what they had done, and they built it, and uh, it, it was just a wonderful thing for them. They, they got a contract from IBM for royalty on my patents. They were paying 2 to $3 million a month to Zytel. So anyway, I got my patents, and eventually I figured out it's I'm 65. They brought in a bunch of younger people who knew how to do everything. And I was 65. It was time for me to go, so I retired. But they didn't let me retire. I came back here, and I worked. I got another patent just on the, the stuff I worked on when I came back, except they didn't pay the final fee. They went broke. So that was when the... IBM money run out, and they'd spend up all the surplus they'd build up. And it's because they did not test their stuff. The programmers just refused to test. I used to say 5% of your time is writing, and 95% is everything else it takes. Writing code is 5%. That's the dessert on the meal. And now we're going to totally change the topic from work to play. You see, Marvin once owned a giant theater organ. It was so large that he had to build an extension onto his house, and it was nearly identical in size to the original house itself. So this is a uh, massive theater organ. It came out of a real theater, right? Oh, yes. It came out of a a 3,500-seat theater. And where was it located? It was in New York City. uh, Well, actually in uh, Queens. Mm Mm-hmm. Triborough Theater was the name of it, T-R-I-B-O-R-O-U-G-H. Mm-hmm. They had built a Triborough Bridge, and Lowe's thought that because of that bridge, people would flock out to this new theater, which was right near the end of the bridge. Sure. The people never came, so the, the theater didn't do well. By the time 
I got this organ. There was a contact I had in New York City who was deep into finding organs in theaters that were going to be destroyed or weren't used. And he found this one for me. He got quite a fee for his finders, but I didn't care. (laughs) I paid him $3,700, and I don't know what he gave the theaters. He may have gotten it for free for all I know. And what year was this? It was 62, I think. Okay. Yes, it was 62. My nephew and I went up. We made eight trips to New York City. Wow. He had a pickup truck and a trailer that we used to go up. And the trailer was full every time except once we didn't take it. When we got to Chonsol, we only took the truck itself. The union in New York is pretty strong. I could not move the console out of the theater. I was able to take the pipes out and all the mechanism, but when I changed to take the console out, the console and the uh, orchestra had been on elevators, separate elevators, and they had run those down some years ago and put in steel beams over top of them and put floors in so it could crowd in a more, few more seats that were going to be empty anyway. So anyway, I had to go down in the basement of the theater, crawl through a little door, and there sat the console on its elevator. They had piled junk on top of it. So I took all the junk out that was there, and the labor union came in with a crew to chop out the floor ahead above it. And uh, we could bring the elevator up, and they, they took it out. There were six of them came and uh, they took it up the aisle and out to their truck and put it on the truck for us for a fee. Anyway, uh, the organ had two chambers, one on each side of the front for the pipes. One would be way up on the left side and the other way up on the right side. And uh, they had shutters in front of them that rotated to let the sound out softer or louder. So anyway, uh, after I had bought the thing, I had six weeks to get out of the theater. We had pipes all through the house in the basement. Uh, I had dug a basement under the house, and I just finished that basement, and I bought the pipe organ. So I set them up down there. The shorter pipe could set up in the chest. So I set that up down there, and the bigger pipes had to go everywhere else. Uh, the garage was full, except the one end of the garage is where we put the console. Uh, was, there was no building for it at this point. So let me ask you a question. So how did you get an interest in this? Oh, I was always interested. Now, I got in the Theater Organ Society in 1958. I guess I should go clear back to when I was a kid. When I was about eight years old, nine, uh, my brother lived in Canton, Ohio, and he I went to visit him and stayed for a week, and he took me to this big theater in Canton, Ohio. And uh, the movie was interesting. It was a Joey Brown movie. It was a comedy. But the main thing to me is they played this wonderful music in between shows. They had about 15 minutes of this music, and that was the most important thing to me. And I always dreamed of playing one or having one. And lo and behold, eventually it happened that was my interest in it, and Dad always talked about how these were not really organs, they were an uh, orchestra, and that was right because you had all the different pipes of an orchestra. This is not to be confused with a church organ. They're very different. Uh, this is a theater organ. They play uh, oboes and tubas, uh, flutes, a lot of the orchestra instruments, and of course we had the marimba and the xylophone and the uh, the bells, the chimes, drums, snare drum, bass drum, just everything you could think of for an orchestra. And it was to play, of course, that was the purpose, was to play along with the string, and the organist would watch the string and play appropriate things. If there was a horse running, he had horse hoofs that would gallop. And uh, everything was happening. If the doorbell was being rung, he should ring the doorbell. If a char was honking the horn, he had an ooga horn that would play. So he was in command of the sound effects for the movie. So I got all that stuff, but here I am with a house full of all this stuff and no no place for it to uh, be built. But I had already planned the building. I knew it, I could build a building the same size as the house on the opposite side of the of the garage. And that's exactly what Marvin did. 
Well, I'm not going to reveal his street address. I did check out his house on Google Maps in street view mode, of course, and one would be hard-pressed to determine which half of the building was his house and which half of the building housed the theater organ. Marvin and his nephew built the building themselves, and that included cutting and pre-drilling all the rafters and pieces in his basement. And of course, with Marvin being a mathematician, it should come as no surprise that the assembly went smoothly and everything fit together perfectly. The new building measured 42 by 28 feet, which is 12.8 by 8.5 meters. It would take them two years to complete the project, but the theater organ, when it was done, had one significant limitation, and that is a human being is limited to just 10 fingers. So no one person could play every part of an orchestral piece. But Marvin had a perfect solution for this. He would install a computer. Now keep in mind, this is the early 1970s. Of course, this is simpler said than done. You can't just install a computer. Marvin needed to install the wiring, the circuit boards, relays, electromagnets, and so on. And they needed to control each and every pipe in that giant theater organ. The theater organ took up half of the building. And while far too detailed for this podcast, Marvin did explain to me how it all worked and uh, how he could operate 40 different things at one time. He did send me a CD of a record he recorded with his first wife, Jean, back in 1974. It is titled, Two Loves Have I, Jean and the Genie Computer. And I'll play Marvin's favorite song at the end of the podcast. But just for comparison, let's hear a sample of Jean, his first wife, playing, and then I'll follow it with a song played by the computer. So first up, we have A Man Without Love, and of course, this is played by his ex-wife, Jean. Next up, we have a sampling of 76 trombones, which is played by Genie the Computer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, a computerized theater organ was unheard of back then, so the American Theater Organ Society asked Marvin to write an article about it. Simply titled Genie, the article appeared in the October 1972 publication of their journal Theater Organ. So I asked Marvin if anyone had ever computerized a theater organ prior to him doing so. No, I don't think there was anybody else. So you were the first? I had no proof of that, but I, nobody else did it, uh, to my knowledge. I, in fact, I've never came up with anybody since who has done exact, but I haven't kept up with it. The last 10 years or so, I haven't paid much attention to the Theater Organ Society. I'm still a member, but it's just to support them. So what happened to the organ? Why don't you explain that? Well, now you come to one of my biggest disappointments in the world. When we had this organ here, we had kids come in and play in it, and the grown-ups come in and play in it. Later on, they were in a group in Baltimore called the Free State Theater Organ Society. And they had an agreement with an auditorium where they had a workshop and the use of the auditorium for programs, and they were allowed to install an organ there. They had a makeshift organ there, and they came to me in uh, 2009, October. No, yeah, October. And they said, we'd like to put your organ in this auditorium. Well, these are the people I had known from times they were kids. And I thought, well... I can't take care of it much longer. And uh, it's friends. It'll be in a nice auditorium. I'd heard the makeshift organ there. It was okay, but it wasn't really much of an organ. So uh, they came up with an agreement that they would move it. They'd 
and uh, had to be set up within two years so I could play it. At the time, I thought my days are getting numbered. And, uh, oh, they said we'll have it set up in a year. Uh, well, after I signed the thing and gave it to them, a year went by. They hadn't even moved it out yet. Two years went by. They hadn't moved it out yet. They were busy figuring out the chambers, and they just didn't do what they were talk- what they said they would. But all the time they were moving it, they kept saying, we'll have this place in a year or two. So time went on, and eventually it just sits up there in pieces. They threw away the, I found out they threw away the uh, the relays, which was a wonderful item of, of interest, but they threw them away. They were going to put in uh, all solid-state stuff. They cut up the console into pieces, and they had promised they would take it out in one piece. But instead, they cut all the cables off with a hacksaw and had it taken out in little pieces. Keyboards were separate. The pedals were separate. Everything was gone. They couldn't have even reassembled it. So I haven't spoken to them in years, but the organ was destroyed. I still have the computer, but of course, it's meaningless. There's nothing hooked onto it, but I kept it. So I still have it sitting out here in the in the room, which has turned into a work room and storage room and, and uh, nothing. So anyway, that's the story of the organ, and it's one of the one of my grievous things in my life that I regret every time I think about it. Uh, it is very sad. I mean, to make that promise and then do nothing. Uh, I mean, do you think they lost interest, or do you think it was a money problem or a time problem? It was a combination of things. One is they were getting on in years, and by the time they actually got around to this, some of the men that were working on it were my age. They were not in better shape to do it than I was, but they had some people in their 40s and 50s, and uh, I just fell for their story. I think they believed their story, but it just didn't happen. Yeah, they they may have had good intentions, but they, they really didn't have the mechanism to to see it through, you know? That's what happened. Uh, I should have advertised the organ with computer and uh, seen if I should get somebody to take it. I would have taken any price as long as they were good. Uh, I actually gave it to this group, but I, I wanted somebody I could depend on. I thought, who can, who can I trust better than these people that I've done all their lives? So that was one of the uh, saddest things I've ever done in my life. Now, my original intention was to end the interview after discussing the theater organ, but honestly, I didn't want to end it on a down note. And we did talk for a bit after this, and I questioned Marvin as to how he met his second wife, Paula. And it's definitely far more upbeat than the loss of his beloved theater organ, and I figured that's a good place to bring his life story to a close. So let's listen to that. Now, how did the two of you meet? <laughs> Well, after I got out of the FBI, I still had friends in the FBI, some pretty close. And one of them said, I have somebody, after my wife moved out and and the divorce was finished, he said, I have somebody I want you to meet. And so he got tickets for a musical here in Washington. And uh, he said, I'll make a date. She comes with you and we'll go out to the the musical and uh, we'll double date. I thought, okay, because I knew at this time, or I thought at this time I was moving to California, so I, I told him, I don't want to get serious with anybody. I'm moving away. And he says, well, come on anyway. I want you to meet her. So we met, and, and we hit it off pretty well. She had been divorced, and uh, a bad divorce. I had a bad divorce. and So uh, we went out. We had our little uh, meal and uh, went to the show. And uh, so, well, I still had a month, I thought, before I moved. And so we dated. I'd dated somebody else, but I wasn't serious either, and I, I knew when I moved out was the end of that. So, well, I'll meet her, too. And so I went to meet her. We went went out and had some dinners and whatever, get-togethers. And uh, I got kind of serious, but I told her I was moving, and I had to, had to stop then. I'd be gone. Well, she called me out in California, and it became a ritual of, if not every night, every other night she called and uh, we sort of grew together by the phone. I went out in, in 1987, and uh, she came out that summer. I got reservations in Yosemite for a week in a tent. 
anyway, she came out and we traveled all over Yosemite, walked as much as we could. And uh, the next year we were going to do it again, and uh, she came out and just stayed. And we got married a year, a little over a year later. We got married in 90. Uh, so I know how long I've been married because it was 90. So we've been married now 32 years. So Marvin, I just wanted to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Well, you can't, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it is to me because all my relatives kept saying, get this recorded. Maybe I can uh, set them on this or this will help them. And I'm so pleased. You know, I think for a kid, a farm kid in Ohio, I've had an interesting life. Yeah, I have to say that is true. So as a person, I would say that about myself anyway, but I, I think it's a, everything, the patents and the things I've been through, I think that it has some interesting points. So Yeah, it's it's really been a pleasure, and, and I wish you the best. And the same to you. Thank you again. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this three-part interview with Marvin. I know that I certainly did, and it'll be an experience that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. I mentioned this before in the first segment, but if you'd like to send a message to Marvin, just send it my way and I'll forward it on to him. My email address is steve at uselessinformation.org. You can use the contact form on my website, or you can send a message through Facebook's Messenger. I will post a script for this episode on my website. That's uselessinformation.org. And I'll also include some photos of Marvin throughout his lifetime. He sent me a book that he wrote in 2006. It's titled Marvin's World, The Early Years, How I Became Me. And in it, he discusses his family history. He generously gave a copy to every family member that attended a reunion at the time. I have to tell you, there were points in this book where I burst out laughing. His sense of humor, it really came through. I should also mention if anyone would like a copy of the summary that Marvin sent to me of his involvement with the hollow nickel case, just let me know and I can forward that on to you. Anyway, I'll bring this to a close and I want to wish everyone who's about to celebrate the holiday a happy Thanksgiving. And as promised, I'll play Marvin's favorite track from his 1974 LP. It's the classic song, Fascination. Well, take care, everyone. Bye.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.